Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 89.9 FM in Irvine. Sorry about that. This was going to be our medical moment with the dean of the medical school facility. Um, Looks like you got some music, only you. We were going to listen to a medical moment about concussions, but uh, that unfortunately is a, a... a bonus for music and a deficit for medical school. But we will get back with that engineering uh, conundrum uh, when we can later. Good morning. This is Claudia Shambaugh wishing you a good Monday, beginning of this week, on your show, Ask a Leader, where we're going to explore today the leadership of the man at the helm at the University of California, Irvine Law School, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. So uh, after a brief musical break, we will talk to the dean and find out what's going on with the law school, with the um, with the U.S. Supreme Court rulings of recent, and we might even get to campus. It all depends on us. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> Welcome back to Ask a Leader. We have this morning our very special guest for uh, this whole hour, our Dean of the University of California, Irvine Law School. Dean Erwin Chemerinsky has some 30 years plus of law school instruction um, in throughout our country, including DePaul University, University of Southern California, Duke University, and now the University of California is honored and privileged to have his leadership at our new law school's helm. He's the founding law school dean, and we welcome you with open arms for this complete hour, Dean Chemerinsky. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Oh, please. It's so good to have you here today. Um, I know we, we have so many things that my listeners have been talking with me that they would like to have covered, and I know you've been interviewed over and over. You've been everywhere in Orange County since your appointment um, uh, two years ago now, I believe it is, to maybe the month or so, to, to the week. And so I, I guess I would like to start out with, because this is the KUCI radio program, uh, the station, what 
reflections have you after this first year of law school has been convened? It's been thrilling. I was actually appointed to the position in September of 2007. My family and I moved here in June of 2008, and I officially took the position on July 1st of 2008. We had our first year of students this past academic year. We had 60 first-year students, and we begin again in just a couple of weeks. Orientation is on August 18th, and then the classes for our new year begin August 23rd because the law school, unlike the rest of the campus, is on the semester system. We'll have 84 first-year students and then 62nd-year students, so we're more than doubling the size of the school. It's been an amazing experience to be part of creating something new, and I feel so fortunate to be here at UCI. And so that, that first year, the 60-year students, so everybody... Um, Everybody stayed on that started last year. That's correct. All 60 students who began last August are returning as second-year students this August. And there's no doubt that all of them were going to succeed, but most law schools lose some of their outstanding students to transfer to other law schools. And I was thrilled that none of our students have transferred. None have decided to leave the law or pursue other things. All will be back when classes start on August 25th. That really is an amazing accounting because of, uh, I can I can imagine, too, we can attribute it to the fact that you did some amazing cherry picking with this this cohort. And they, they probably are they probably have a very special kind of a connection with each other starting the school together. They do. They all decided to be here because they wanted to be part of creating a very special law school. There's only 60 of them, which is very small. There's no law school in the country that is a class that small. Wow. No law school in the country that is the kind of student-faculty ratio we do. And so I think a very special bond developed amongst them, between them and the faculty, and between them and the law school. Very, very good. And the 84, now these... They're, they're different from the first class in what ways, the, this, the new first-year students this year? Well, one of the big differences is our entry class, we're all offered a full scholarship for yes. the three years of law school. We're able to raise sufficient private funds to do that. Our second class, each of them has been offered at least a 50% scholarship for at the least. three years of law school. That's pretty commendable. Otherwise, they're very similar, um, about two-thirds from California, one-third from outside California in each class by the numbers that are used to evaluate law school classes, the median LSAT and median GPA. Both are in the top 20 of all law schools in the United States. Very, very, very fine. Well, I guess for some budding students, uh, budding law students who might be awake at this hour, um, are there things they should think about that when you, since you were talking about uh, entry requirements and um, the paperwork that an entering law school student does, um, what what would be a compelling piece? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, folks, but I just because somebody might want to know why, I want to make sure we cover this. What is it that straight from the dean that makes for a compelling law school application? To be honest. All law schools in the country look more at the LSAT, the law school admissions test score, and GPA, the undergraduate grade point average, than anything else. Now, that's not the only things that are looked at. Obviously, the letters of recommendation matter, personal statements matter, life experiences matter, but I would be 
lying to you if I said we were any different from other schools. Every law school gives more weight to the test scores and grades than anything else in making admissions decisions. And that is to say that those are very good predictors for their success both in law school and afterward, and that's why it's used so, so heavily? Well, I think undergraduate grades are looked to because they do show the person's diligence, their ability. Um, the LSAT has a pretty strong correlation to bar pass rates, a weaker correlation to first-year grades, and probably less correlation to overall grades or to performance as lawyers. But the LSAT does offer a standard measure to evaluate people. Um, it's very difficult to choose from among students. I don't know the exact numbers we have for this year's class, but for mm -hmm. our first class we had over 2,700 applicants wow. for 60 slots. And so in inevitably LSAT and grades play a large role, but by no means the only role. Every application gets read, and letters of recommendation really matter. Personal statements matter. Life experiences matter. Okay, so I think diligence, like they'll learn later, due diligence in their practices. That, that for students that are listening, this is, this is step one, folks, about your diligence throughout your academic career so that you're strong with your, your undergraduate work and that you're able to do the best that you can in those um, law school aptitude tests. Well, thanks for, for bringing that up. And is there um, anything else that you would like to reflect on about starting this law school? Oh, how many hours do we have to talk about it? It's been all-consuming, but as I think the only word I can use is the one that I've already mentioned. It's just thrilling. Um, it's been terrific to recruit the faculty. Um, we started with 10 founding faculty, all of whom came from top 20 law schools. Mm -hmm. We hired seven additional faculty last year before the students arrived. And it's always nice to get external validation. There's a law professor at the University of Chicago, Brian Leiter, who has a very influential blog in the law school world called The Leiter Report. Every spring he ranks faculty in terms of their scholarly impact. And it was exciting that we were ranked ninth in the country. Whoa. We were ranked just below Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, NYU, Columbia, Berkeley, and Northwestern. And so it's a wonderful company to be in. We've hired yes. three more faculty this year, and we'll continue to expand our faculty okay. into about 50 full-time faculty. We'll hire three at about 60 a year. We've hired terrific, experienced administrators. One of the first-year students at the end of the year said, you know, I thought coming to a new school there would be bumps in the road, but everything was so smooth. And I think that's really a tribute to the terrific, experienced administrators that we have. Well, I think, to your credit, that people were happy that you were coming, what you meant for the kind of... Uh, what what areas that you wanted to develop, part of which would be the, was it the public law aspect of this law school training? And the people were, people were on board. They wanted to make this all come together for all the right reasons for a broader, broader goal than just getting a, some good law school students ready. That's absolutely right. When we had our first faculty meeting in August of 2008, I said to my colleagues, we have a chance to create the ideal law school. We have a blank slate. We're part of the University of California at Irvine. It's a terrific university that's particularly strong in law-related areas. Now the challenge for us is to take advantage of that opportunity. And I said the same thing with our first faculty meeting this past August. Um, we are trying to do things differently. We've developed a unique first-year curriculum. We do want to prepare our students for the practice of law at the highest levels of the profession. We do want to instill in our students a commitment to public service. We have areas of law that we want to 
emphasize that seem particularly important for this moment in history. So we're trying to seize the wonderful opportunity we've been given by UCI. Excellent. That's indeed. I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. We're talking with UCI Law School founding dean, Dean Chemerinsky. Well, speaking of moments in history, I think you can anticipate we wanted to talk in uh, as much depth as this portion of the show can allow. Many, many of the fall, much of the fallout that's occurred with, we'll talk about this year's Supreme Court rulings, and uh, perhaps we can get uh, later into um, some sort of trends with the Roberts uh, Supreme Court. Um, the New York Times covered uh, a piece about that uh, two Sundays ago. But uh, getting at what I think is the one that rattles my cage the most is the Citizens United decision. Um, a summary of this is maybe it's better you give it than I do so that everybody knows when they hear Citizens United, they know what it's about and they know what they've got to be watching for. Sure. Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission is a case decided by the Supreme Court on January 21st, 2010. It held that corporations and by implications unions can spend as much as they want in independent expenditures to get the candidates they want elected or the candidates they oppose defeated. The Supreme Court said that corporations have the same free speech rights as individuals and thus should have the same right to spend money in election campaigns that individuals possess. And when we heard this rollout, we understood this was going to be a, this was a big plate shift underneath the whole political setting. And I, I don't want to go so much in the political, but, uh, well, we actually we can't resist. But we're, but, but what, what about this? Um, is this is this not a a decision that is really reversing precedent that Sandra Day O'Connor, before she was replaced by uh, Mr. Alito, what uh, that this now makes for it's a new not only is it changing precedent but its effect on what the electoral process is going to look like from now on um, is riveting. Yes, let me talk first about precedent. Yes, please do. In That's 19, what I most want to hear from you. In 1990, in a case called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the Supreme Court ruled that the government can limit corporate spending in election campaigns. The Supreme Court expressed great concern that corporate wealth could drown out other voices and thus distort the election process. The court also expressed concern about protecting shareholders. Corporate money is, after all, shareholder money, and corporations might be spending their money in a way that the shareholders don't want. In 2003, the Supreme Court upheld a federal law provision that limited the ability of corporations and unions to spend money on broadcast ads for or against an identified candidate before primary and general elections. Yes. That was a 5-4 decision, as you mentioned. Justice O'Connor was the majority, along with Justices Stephen Souter Ginsburg and Breyer. In Citizens United, the Supreme Court expressly overruled both the Austin and McConnell decisions, and Citizens United was a 5-4 case. Well, what happened in seven years to cause the court to reverse itself? Did it find some musty history of the First Amendment that led it to believe it made a mistake? No, the only difference is that Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, and he came out the other way. 
in essence joining the dissenters from seven years ago to form a new majority. The other part of your question was about the political effects of this. What will it mean now that corporations, and for that matter unions, can spend as much as they want to get candidates elected or defeated? I think it will, in some elections, make all of the difference. I worry especially about what it might mean in smaller town elections, where one company really can drown out other voices. I worry what it will mean in states that have elected judges, as the costs of judicial elections are ever-increasing, and corporations have more ability to get who they want elected to the bench or who they don't want defeated. Well, I, I understand sort of that West Virginia effect. It's, I mean, it's already been that's already been going on in terms of of campaign finance, if I could call it that, coin that term today. But um, I, I also wondered about, you know, large states, large California, Senate uh, election campaign coming up, and that this, it, I, I imagine that the impact of this decision could has already uh, made a lot of people think seriously about what, what would happen with the, this, uh, the U.S. state Senate, uh, U.S. Senate race in California, that with so much money that can come from everywhere that can, as I, I remember that when, when um, and I want to use this kind of analogy that I'd heard on a, a different public affairs show some years ago, is that what uh, cognitive dissonance looks like in, it, in terms of people about the, what, means the, what it means for this money to flood uh, any given campaign is that it's sort of like having a person, having a normal conversation with another person in a rock and roll arena with the, the rock concert underway. You're not being able to hear what candidates are trying to say substantively about a public policy point could get drowned out with that money flooding the airwaves and money uh, buying up so many of the airwaves so there maybe isn't any sort of a counterpoint in other commercial outlets. I strung a few things in there. Sure. I don't think we're going to see this in every election all the time. But there's no doubt that when corporations want to spend money, corporate treasuries can expend huge sums. I think it's so important that the listeners realize that corporations and unions could spend money before this case. But they have to create a political action committee. They have to raise money for the PAC, whether it's from employees or shareholders or interested parties. What makes this different is that now corporations and unions can spend money directly, directly. out of the Treasury. And that's powerful. And now the reality is we put corporations and unions together. Studies show that corporations spend about 15 times as much as unions do. Right. Corporate treasuries have vast wealth. And when they want to use it to get candidates elected, they now can do so. Indeed. And, that, and when you said in the earlier part of this discussion that it's the um, – that you said by implication – uh, unions, trade unions, but we understand though that it, it is a very uh, there's a huge disparity between the, uh, the resources available with the corporations and, and unions. Well, um, I know we're watching that you know the the Congress is uh, stymied in trying to address the disclosure that would be um, required of any of these uh, campaign commercials to identify the sources of those funds underwriting those commercials. But it, we're, we don't know yet what's going to happen, but uh, the trend is looking like nothing would be in place as this campaign season continues. The question for Congress 
and for that matter, state legislatures, city councils, what can they do yes. after Citizens United? Yes, thank one you. One thing that Citizens United did was to uphold, and it was 8 to 1, the disclosure provisions of McCain-Feingold. Okay. So a response by Congress has been to impose even more stringent disclosure requirements. Unfortunately, the proposed Disclose Act is now being filibustered in the Senate, and it looks like the filibuster is succeeding. Yes. And so even this relatively minimal campaign finance reform, its disclosure, seems not to have a likelihood of getting through Congress at this time. Indeed, indeed. And I'm not sure that, well, that, that's more of a political question about whether there's momentum uh, away from, if there's more momentum now than will be later to address that disclosure uh, aspect. But um, So I, I don't want to pursue that. But um, so there's yet another uh, um, decision, and I'm, um, I only think of it in terms of the, the Chicago Gun Control uh, um, Act, um, the Chicago City Gun Control, um, uh, I want to say code, I guess. Um, what would you like to address in how the Supreme Court sure. has addressed that after the, uh, the Washington, D.C. restriction? Sure. Just to put this in a little context, from 1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified, until June 26, 2008, the Supreme Court never struck down any laws violating the Second Amendment. In a handful of cases dealing with the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court always said, there's about a right to have firearms for the purpose of militia service. Then, in June 2008, the court struck down a 35-year-old D.C. ordinance that prohibited private ownership or possession of handguns. It was a 5-4 decision split along ideological lines, and the court said the Second Amendment protects the right of individuals of guns, at least in their home, for personal security. The District of Columbia is a part of the federal government, and so the Supreme Court didn't have occasion to consider whether the Second Amendment applies to state and local governments. That was the case decided on June 28th of this year, yes. McDonald versus City of Chicago, where the Supreme Court ruled five to four that the Second Amendment applies to state and local governments. In other words, state and local gun control laws can now be challenged as violating the Second Amendment. I don't know when views on guns came to be so ideologically defined in this country, with conservatives taking the gun rights position and liberals taking the gun control position. But both of these cases, District Columbia versus Heller, McDonald versus Chicago, had the conservative five in the majority, the liberal four dissenting. And so is there any, there isn't any case do you see coming forward to further detail the um, the open, like, um, let's say, what the kind of arm that may or may not be restricted um, or the uh, the the fact of concealed, a concealed firearm, are any of those cases in um, some, on some kind of an appeal somewhere in oh. the country to uh, start to detail what restrictions may or may not be about? Absolutely. The Supreme Court was clear in both of these cases that the Second Amendment is not absolute. The court said, for example, the government can regulate where guns are located, preventing guns in schools or in airports. The government can regulate who has guns keeping people with a felony conviction or a history of serious illness from having guns. But what regulations will be allowed, under what circumstances, all of that is left for future litigation. And a lot of it is already pending in the courts. And it's on all levels, all sorts of 
uh, steps of appeal at this point? Well, mostly it's still in the federal district courts because, especially with regard to state and local governments, it was only at the end of June that this came down. I'll give you an example. Yes, please. After the Supreme Court struck down the Chicago ordinance, Chicago adopted a new law. It says that people can have one gun in their home. The gun can only be in the home, not on the lawn or the patio or the garage. Anybody who has a gun has to have gun training first. If there's a child in the home, then the gun either has to have a trigger lock or be in a locked box. And no guns can be sold in Chicago. Not surprisingly, the National Rifle Association immediately brought challenge to the Chicago ordinance, and that case is now pending in federal court. So if I can get a timeline, my listen, and I want to remind my listeners, we're listening today to Dean Chemerinsky, founding law dean of UCI Law School um, on KUCI. Uh, when, so the turnover here, the decision was on June 26th, uh, uh, the, the, the ruling was rendered on June 26th of this year, from the, or, or yes, of this year. Um, then uh, when did the Chicago municipality then activate that response? Yeah, it's interesting. The court decided on Monday, June 28th. Or 28th. And within just a few weeks after that, Chicago adopted and Mayor Daley signed the new Chicago gun bill. And then right after that, the National Rifle Association filed challenge in federal court in Chicago. Okay. So was that fast? So they're all – the NRA is really ready to address all these things. They, I mean, they that's what they do. <laughs> but um, that's, that's very um, – that's immediate response, and I suppose that the, the the municipality of Chicago saw the writing on the wall with the Heller case that uh, they they knew it was a matter of time before that challenge would put them in the center crosshairs. I shouldn't say, but um, that uh, they were ready with that ordinance, um, and so it will be interesting to do it. Uh, Dean Chemerinsky, uh, do you anticipate by the kinds of tea leaves that the Supreme Court has left with these previous two rulings of theirs in um, with the Heller case and the McDonald case? What might the Roberts Court, how would they react to the Chicago ordinance? If it, I mean, we assume that it would go all the way up to that level. I think it will. There are five justices very sympathetic to the gun rights position. I think that some provisions of the Chicago ordinance most likely be struck down by the Supreme Court. I think the prohibition of any sale of guns in Chicago, I think it will be hard for the court to sustain. I think the limit to one gun and only in the home not on a lawn, the patio, the garage, is unlikely to be upheld. On the other hand, I think the court may very well uphold gun training requirements and lock requirements yes. when there are children in the home. Yes. I, I see that, um, what you mean by that, from what um, some of the editorials reading those tea leaves from those rulings about, uh, you know, restrictions of training and, and where sales. I think sales, too, hasn't really been addressed where those That's can right. occur. But if somebody has a right to something, the government can't prohibit all sale. The government couldn't say, women have a right to abortion, but any doctor who performs an abortion commits a crime. Likewise, I think the court's going to say, if people have a right to guns, there has to also be a right to obtain the guns in a lawful manner. In a lawful manner. And that's the, that's the area that can be continually refined then in, the, in what gun restrictions look like. In anywhere in the country. Well, I um, wanted to uh, just give you a moment, a, a, a bit of a break here from our hour-long interview, and uh, we'll have a musical interlude. Uh, Dean Chemerinsky, if you'll just stay on the line okay. with us, and we'll give you a, a little bit of a break, and uh, we'll be right back in a few minutes.
Welcome back to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. We're talking this morning with, <coughs> excuse me, founding law school dean of the University of California Irvine Law School. Dean Chemerinsky is with us this morning. Uh, for the whole hour, we are very fortunate to have you, Dean Chemerinsky. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you again. I wanted to uh, just pull up as we talk a little bit more about the U.S. Supreme Court rulings um, this year um, before we talk just generally about the trends and uh, uh, hopefully some time about the uh, the latest nomination to the Supreme Court, Elena Kagan. Um, first, um, the ruling um, – that may, it doesn't have as large of an impact, but I think our listeners might want to make sure we talk a bit about the ruling concerning uh, the free speech with obscene uh, expression through the the uh, depiction of abuse of animals. Um, uh, the animal rights uh, advocates brought before the Supreme Court to challenge the, um, I, I guess it was, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the actual sure. material. What it is is it involves a federal statute that makes it a federal crime to sell, distribute, or possess depictions of animal cruelty. It was a law adopted by Congress in response to a genre of speech that I had never heard of called animal snuff films. Okay. It's quite gross if you see people literally crushing small animals. Um, the Supreme Court, in an 8-to-1 decision declared this unconstitutional. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, only Justice Alito dissented. And Chief Justice Roberts said, however distasteful the speech might be, it's still speech. It doesn't fit into any of the exceptions of the First Amendment. Congress, states, can and do punish animal cruelty, but you can't punish pictures of animal cruelty. He also expressed concern that under this law, many hunting videos would be unconstitutional. That's that. Okay. So, uh, you know, I think what Congress is trying to do is well-intentioned. Obviously, all of us want to see an end to animal cruelty, but I also understand why the majority said the way to do this is to prohibit the cruelty, not to prohibit the pictures of it. Okay. Okay, very good. Well, then this ties in, though, with uh, other obscenity issues that we're talking about, the um, making... Uh, we're restricting access of certain um, obscene, prurient, um, I don't know prurient is uh, what it could be depicted as, but the um, the video, um, sort of the video violent, uh, violent video games that are, uh, I'd say, that are ratcheting up the ante here on um, tastelessness. So I think is the Supreme Court sort of and trying to anticipate this kind of a challenge. Well, that's actually pending before the Supreme Court to be decided next year. It involves a California law that prohibits the sale or rental of violent video games to minors under 18 and requires the labeling of such video games. The federal courts below, the district court and the court of appeals, declared this unconstitutional and violating the First Amendment. The United States Supreme Court granted review. will be deciding it in the coming term. This will be the first time the Supreme Court has dealt with violence as a category of speech. Uh -huh. There are many cases dealing with sex in the First Amendment, but this is the first as to violence. Also, of course, the first time the Supreme Court's ever dealt with the medium of video games. And so, based on how they approached the cruelty, let's say the the projection, the um, 
the uh, production of, of images of cruelty to animals, what do you see as a, um, a sort of a continuation of uh, that logic applied then to violence produced um, for strictly for entertainment? Hard to know. On the one hand, the Supreme Court has always given great deference to the government when it's about protecting children, especially protecting children from obscene speech. And so in that one might infer that the court might be sympathetic to California and want to protect children from violent video games. On the other hand, in the case we were just talking yes. about involving animal cruelty, Chief Justice Roberts said the court's reluctant to create new exceptions to the First Amendment. And yes. this is, in essence, asking them to create a new exception for violence. It will be one of the most important, one of the most closely watched decisions of the coming term. Okay, so we're, we heard that here nearly first. Um, and, I mean, because we all, those of us who understand um, and, you know, deeply, uh, you know, put to use the free speech for our various uh, sort of political agendas or for, uh, uh, yeah, I want to say mostly for that, that we're um, watching where exceptions are made that have an implication for how we conduct ourselves or how we are to, uh, to I want to say, tolerate or to withstand some, uh, what, how other First Amendment rights of the speech are, um, are uh, exercised around us. So it's, uh, it does, it's, it's a very important kind of uh, step um, in that um, in fine-tuning what the Roberts Court had with the, uh, the, animal, the cruelty to animals um, case. But I, I don't know, could you please remind me, Dean Chemerinsky, then the name of that case so we can uh, adroitly refer to that. The animal cruelty case is United States versus Stevens. Okay, all right, thank you. Because um, I was just looking at that editorial this morning in the New York Times, and that I was, didn't see that uh, direct reference to that particular label there. So... Um, so I hope our listeners who are we're listening to Dean Chemerinsky, UCI founding law school dean, and um, on KUCI, uh, we're talking about uh, Supreme Court rulings of consequence this year. Um, and uh, I want uh, listeners just to really take note of what uh, the dean has just said about the um, the challenge uh, anticipated, uh, or in, well, I guess it's scheduled. Uh, to appear before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, next year uh, pertaining to violence uh, and uh, free speech uh, from uh, California. What is the name of the, the uh, litigant here? Um, in the Schwarzenegger case? Oh, that's, uh, yes. It's um, Schwarzenegger versus, and it's a, a video game company. I'll, let me think about it for just a okay, second. Okay, no, that's I'll fine. Give you the exact oh, that's fine. Just so that we can refer to it so we, we can tag it early on and we can be uh, the more literate uh, News uh, consumers for um, this moving up through this uh, this final channel. So uh, it's it'll be very interesting. I, I thank you for making it uh, so clear. And as you do all things, it's um, the case you want. It's Schwarzenegger for Entertainment Merchants Association is the name of the case that involves the California law prohibiting the rental of sale of violent video games to minors. Okay, thank you very very much. We'll we'll be watching that, and I know from. My listeners who talk about the programs they've heard, and they'll, they'll be very glad to take this away. And that, that's the point of my Ask a Leader program is there's, I want lots of takeaway messages from this programming so that everybody understands that we 
We need to be looking out for things. We need to be activated. We need to be as literate as we possibly can be with what is developing out there in this big world of public policy. So um, this is a, it's a good measure here to have this opportunity to anticipate what will roll out with the Supreme Court ruling uh, this next uh, session. And that begins always in October on a particular, it's a particular day in October. It's always the first Monday in October. I think this year that makes it Monday, October the 4th. Okay. And, of course, what will make this term distinctive is that John Paul Stevens will not be on the bench after 35 years on the Supreme Court, and we'll have a new justice, I think almost surely, Elena Kagan. Have you uh, gotten to know her in the in law school administration circles and um, various uh, envelope-pushing kind of uh, law school scholar settings? I do know her. I don't want to overstate that. We're not close friends. We've been on panels together. Most recently, we spoke on a panel together at a federal judicial conference in Columbus, Ohio, in May, just a few days before she was nominated by oh. President Obama. <laughs> she's charming, she's brilliant, and she's going to be on the Supreme Court a long time. She's only 50 years old. With those kinds of wits that she has about her, and with the trend that we've alluded to earlier in this program, do you see that she might have some be some force to be reckoned with in terms of the 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 outcome as the New York Times uh, article last two Sundays ago talked about the trend of the on the conservative agenda. Do you see Elena Kagan having any ability to nudge the uh, the uh, tr- the prevalent trend toward a uh, a broader understanding, reading of the impact of these decisions that no, they've rendered? I don't see Elena Kagan as changing the overall ideological composition of the court. The article you're referring to is a magnificent one, yes. done by Adam Liptak. It was on the front page of the New York Times and continued, I think, I had full, two full pages inside, yes. filled with graphs and charts. And if people haven't seen I'm sure it's available online. I still have my original copy, folks. And what it documents is that this is a court that's more conservative then its predecessor, the Rehnquist Court, and then its predecessor, the Berger Court. But the reality is there's no reason to believe that Elena Kagan is going to change the ideological composition. She's replacing John Paul Stevens, one of the most liberal members of the court. The five conservatives are Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and they're usually joined by Anthony Kennedy. And so, so long as you've got those five justices, Elena Kagan's presence isn't going to alter that ideological balance. I understand that, um, and that I just wanted to have uh, the listeners hear from you um, that appraisal, and I think uh, many agree with you about that, but um, to understand uh, what, what, what the dynamic is. And uh, I thought it was interesting that the conclusion of the article to which we're both referring uh, it says the, the Rehnquist Court overruled 45 precedents over 19 years. 60% of those decisions reached a conservative result. The Roberts Court overruled eight presidents in its first five years, a slightly lower annual rate. All but one reached a conservative result. And I, that, uh, that sort of simply... <laughs> Uh, sort of pithy sort of roundup of that trend, I think, is uh, 
it's something to take note of of what the consequences are for the broadest part of our public. Let me put the statistics in a slightly different way. Thank you. This term, the one that completed on June 28th, there were 12 5-4 decisions that split along ideological lines. We had Robert Scalia, Thomas Alito on one side, Stevens, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor on the other. Justice Kennedy sided with the conservatives in nine, with the liberals in three. The year before that, there were 16 5-4 cases that split along ideological lines. Justice Kennedy sided with the conservatives in 11, and with the liberals in five. The reality is that Justice Kennedy sides with the conservatives more than twice as often as he sides with the liberals. And that says that the Roberts Court overall is a conservative court. Justice Kennedy is significantly more conservative than the justice who used to be the swing justice, Senator O'Connor. And I think that's another way of looking at the fact that the Roberts Court is more conservative than the Rehnquist Court. And and the the quality of that, though, like with uh, the the precedents reversed, to, to the extent that they were, it may not have been as many, but uh, I think the, the article was backpedaling a little bit the, uh, the, the consequence of those reversals. I think, like we were talking about Citizens United, that it will, uh, it's, a, it's a present change, but a, a major, a major one. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot to say about that in the, after the election this year of what that consequence was. I think that's right, and I think to talk about the Supreme Court the article we're referring to is important because it brings to a general audience something that constitutional law professors have long seen. In fact, I have a book that's coming out at the end of September. The name of that is? That Simon & Schuster is publishing for a general audience, and the title says it all. It's titled The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, and it's my view of how much the court has turned to the right and obviously my criticism of that. On the other hand, those who are conservative are listening this is a court to rejoice over. It, overall, it's far more conservative than it is liberal when it's split five to four, or as you say, when it's overruling precedent. Right, right. And I, I hope our listeners will take note. We'll repeat this book you uh, that oh, that's okay. published by Simon. No, I'm, I'm happy to do this. Uh, uh, Simon & Schuster, The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. And when will this be available? End of September. The end of September. And it'll uh, will you... I, you know, I'm going to have to say, I hope you'll have a book signing at the, the nearby law school. Uh, um, the, 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 uh, not the law school, but the bookstore here. I don't know, but campus. we'll see. But I'm very excited about it. I've always wanted to write something about the Supreme Court for a general public audience. And what I do in a book is what Adam Liptak in the New York Times did yes. so effectively in a couple of pages, really describe how much the court has turned to the right. And what I want to focus on is, what it then means for people in their day-to-day lives. Well, I appreciate that you've done that, uh, made it more accessible to us, and I know that's that's what you've been doing after having relocated back to the Southern California area. You've been you've been everywhere out there, and at the risk of sounding obsequious, I don't mind being obsequious from time to time if it's to serve a purpose, that you've uh, been to so many different forums, synagogues, the campus, uh, in uh, every stripe here at... at uh, you know, uh, forms the Planned Parenthood has put on. There's, um, you've made yourself available to all kinds of AM, FM, radio, and I'm talking local. I know there's so many other things, but I, so that our listeners know that your public service has a um, tremendous broad and a deep reach. You're so kind. It's really, it's my pleasure. I feel very honored to be able to have the opportunity to do things like this radio program and to speak to groups, uh, you know, 
Orange County, across Southern California, I always talk about how important it is that those who are law professors use their knowledge, not just to talk to each other, but also to inform the public. Um, I think that we do live in a country where civic awareness has decreased, where people are less aware of, say, who's on the Supreme Court than who are the judges on television programs every day. And I think that it's so important for people to realize how much what the Supreme Court does affects their day-to-day lives, sometimes the most intimate, important aspects of those day-to-day lives. And in those kinds of day-to-day lives, did we, I'm trying to remember if, if it was this year or last year, uh, was it the Ledbetter case? Was that two years ago? It was a couple of years ago, and it was a case that involved when does the statute of limitations run for a pay discrimination claim under federal civil rights law. And the Supreme Court took a very restrictive approach that made it almost impossible for plaintiffs to be able to sue. One of the first things that happened when the administrations changed in 2009 was Congress passed and President Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Pay Equity Act to make it possible for victims of pay discrimination to be able to sue. So that's a case where there could be, there was an executive branch remedy to uh, a Supreme Court uh, adjustment, but we're, as we've talked about earlier with Citizens United, we're not, we're not sure about any kind of legislative remedy to offset the unleashing of the, the funding. I don't want to over-talk to Citizens United. But sure, and, and what made that different was that was a Supreme Court decision interpreting a federal statute, the Federal Employment Discrimination Law. So Congress could then revise that statute, and it did. It wasn't just an executive act. Congress passed the statute, and then President Obama signed it. What's different when the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution is the government is often much more limited in what it can do. Right, right. And, well, I I would be overstating the political aspect of the um, response to Citizens United, but we'll we'll watch, and uh, I don't know... um, whether um, our listeners, there's not a, a way for them to lobby much more right now, but we'll, um, in dealing with the Citizens United outcome, what, uh, what the Congress is trying to remedy there. But we'll, I just want our listeners to, to watch and listen carefully for the uh, discussion as the Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and uh, s- ranking or senior s- Senator uh, Robert Schumer, uh, excuse me, is it Schumer? Robert Schumer. Is, uh, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer. Oops. In uh, New York are uh, trying to, um, or, or at a s- bit of a, a pass uh, um, standoff here with how the um, that remedy of being of requiring uh, corporate entities to disclose their identity in their uh, funding of the campaign. We've talked about that enough, though. So, um when we're talking about you being out and about, I guess what we want to uh, perhaps conclude, and I know you have a meeting shortly after our last couple of questions here, um, and I thank you for your generosity of your time here today, is that do you have anything else you would like to say locally about what we can do with the various uh, uh, the agendas, whether they're uh, – Within the campus, or it's a proxy beyond. How, what remedy you see we can settle some of this uh, uh, frenzy over the uh, divide, our little Middle East divide here on campus? Um, It's an incredibly difficult issue. It's, I 
guess inevitable, the sad, that one of the hardest issues confronting the world has come to this campus. There isn't an easy solution to the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, and I think we've moved further from a solution over the last several years. So it's not surprising that the tensions then between those who support the Palestinians and those who support the Israelis has spilled over on campus here. I think the most important thing is to be respectful of one another. Every group has the right to express its message on campus. Certainly the Palestinians, through groups like the Muslim Student Union, should be able to bring the speakers they want on campus, and all should be respectful of those speakers. At the same time, those who support the Israeli position should be able to bring those speakers on campus, and we should be respectful of that. Um, to me, what's most important is that a campus always be a marketplace of ideas, a place where all ideas can be expressed and debated. And so I'll go back to what I said. I think the most important thing is to just treat each other respectfully. And so, and that respect carries the day with all ideas being expressed so that we, when we have forums, that we be intellectually honest with our uh, opponent in a debate setting. We let them speak and we speak. And we also, I mean, everybody lets the other one speak. And I, I don't I don't mean to be simplistic about this. I wasn't there at the particular, uh, the sort of uh, the flashpoint of this last round of, uh, that has resulted in dismissing the, the Muslim uh, student um, uh, center group uh, for Not at least quite. one year. They've, that's right. They've been suspended, or the recommendation is that they be suspended from operating campus for a year. But it's not simply because they disrupted the speech of the Israeli ambassador. It's also that they misrepresented to top university officials what they were going to do and what they did. And the collusion, I guess, around all that. Right. And, um, look, this campus isn't going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem. We're not going to be able to persuade those who take the more Muslim student union position that Israel has done terrible injustices to change their mind. And we're not going to persuade those to take more of the Israeli position that Israel is an endangered nation that isn't being recognized by terrorists to change their mind. But what we can be is a place where we can all coexist and listen to one another and at the very least respect one another. Well, I think that's the, a banner uh, a means of uh, closing this wonderful hour with you, Dean Chemerinsky. And I, that's the takeaway message of, uh, I want listeners to have from this particular program, and I, I would like for uh, the dean to return to prepare for his meeting here. We'll, we'll let you go. I thank, thank you, you very much for being it's on the show. It's been a pleasure, and I hope we can do it again. Okay, thank you very much. That's thank Dean Chemerinsky, so Law School Dean at UCI. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we were treated to uh, a full hour with the UCI founding law school dean, and I hope that um, you took away as much of uh, a message as I have with what has happened, what's going on now, and what we can anticipate with the, the major constitutional uh, workings in our country. And I um, look forward to um, taking up another uh, level, well, you, both with the dean, uh, at another interview. Not won't be as long. We won't get to be this lucky a second time around. But um, And we'll, we'll take up these and other questions um, with our distinguished guests that I'm getting such wonderful ideas from you listeners, and I want to hear more comments from you about how we're covering this. I want to thank everybody for joining me today, this hour of Monday morning, 
And I, I also want to repeat, as we do weekly, that the views on this program are not necessarily those views of the management of KUCI nor the views of the UC California Board of Regents. Thanks today for listening to Ask a Leader, and our show is going to be followed by our Blues Disease program with Mr. Scott, and we'll hopefully um, get your company next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. Mm -hmm.